Last Sunday, we, we commenced a series on the Reformation. And if you were here, I hope that you experienced what I did, a wonderful time of study and fellowship around those truths. But for the sake of those who were unable to be with us last week, I want to just briefly introduce the topic once again and the plan of attack for just a few moments, just for review for those who were here, but more importantly for those who were not, to put you into the picture. Last week, I began by referring to the solar system, S-O-L-A-R. And I explained the solar system that you're familiar with as the gravitationally bound system that comprises the sun and the objects that orbit around it, either directly or indirectly. And you know, I'm sure, that the sun is the centre of our solar system. The planets, 61 moons, asteroids, comets, meteoroids and other rocks and gas all orbit the sun. But last week we commenced a different study, a study on a different solar system, spelled S-O-L-A-E. Not a scientific or astronomical system, but a spiritual and a biblical system. It too, like our solar system, centres around a sun, except this isn't an S-U-N, this is an S-O-N. And this sun is not a spinning ball of hot gas which lights up the world, it is the Son of God who is the light of the world. And similar to our physical solar system, the biblical solar system also includes luminous bodies which orbit around our precious sun, S-O-N. These are the great truths of the gospel. The spiritual moons are the lesser lights and the truths which reflect the glory of the sun. And as I mentioned last week by way of introduction, whenever we study a spiritual paradigm or pattern, it is extremely important that we do not lose sight of the central aspect of this spiritual solar system, and that is the Son of God. Sometimes theologians and pastors and teachers become so enamored with the small rocks in the solar system that they lose sight of the central and glorious theme, which is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And the Bible says that he is the one who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. This is our solar system for the month of Reformation, S-O-L-A-E. But then I went on to say that some years ago when I first came to understand what this solar system was all about, and by the way, it wasn't called the solar system, most people call it the five solars of the Reformation. But the Latin plural is sola, S-O-L-A-E. And so immediately, as my mind thinks, I thought solar, well, that sounds like S-O-L-A-R, and I know what the solar system is, so let's make this the S-O-L-A-E system to help me remember it. And as I began to think about it, I realized that every aspect of this theological pattern was interconnected. So I took a pen and some paper, and I began, as I often do, to draw a diagram. And the diagram eventually evolved into something that we're going to look at again for by way of introduction. It was like a building with the, the building block and the basis of it all being what's called sola scriptura. The foundation of everything for the Reformation was that the scripture alone speaks for our governance. Scripture alone, not papal authority, not the church, not the pastor. The scripture is our final rule of authority and practice. And so we call that the foundation, the written word of God alone. And then secondly, we find that we have a pillar that's built upon that. And that pillar is called sola gratia, which simply means grace alone. Followed by sola fide, which is faith alone. Followed by the third pillar, which is sola Christo, which is Christ alone. These three pillars mark what is built upon the scripture and what the reformers stood for. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then we come to the rooftop, which is sola deo gloria, the covering to the glory of God alone. And that forms like an arrow, as you'll see there, pointing heavenward. The covering for the glory of God alone. It begins with the basis of scripture built upon that is grace, faith, Christ and the purpose for the glory of God 
alone. And that has been our diagram. I'll probably show that to us each Sunday to get us more and more familiar with this. Not because we want to know Latin terms, but because these are critical to our understanding of the Reformation. And so the plan of attack, as I mentioned last week, is last Sunday we began with the first, which was Sola Scripture. Today will be the second facet. Next week, Lucas will preach on Sola Friday, and then I will take the last two weeks to wrap it up. And this morning, I ask you to join me with all your marshaled attention, if possible, with your pen and paper, if needed, as we look at Sola Gracia, the first pillar of the Reformation. Father, we have already had a longer order of service this morning. Thank you for the privilege we've had to give uh, of the money you have so generously given to us to uh, aid those in other places. Thank you for the songs we've been able to sing that speak of your grace. Thank you for the video clips that have uh, alerted us to uh, some form of uh, what William Tyndale stood for and went through. Uh, And now as we turn to your word and this great subject that There is no way in the world I can do full justice to. I pray that in the time that we have together, uh, we would grow and that we would learn and that grace and the meaning of grace uh, would take a whole new perspective for us. That it would be so rich and so full that it would force us to our knees, fill our eyes with tears as we contemplate the grace of God. Help us this morning, we pray. Thank you for this grand subject. I pray you'd empower and strengthen as I seek to help this, uh, our church, fellow believers, perhaps those who don't know the Lord, uh, with this incredible subject. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing I want us to note this morning, as we did last week, is a brief glossary of terms. If you were here with me last week, we began the message by looking at some key terms of the Reformation, some important words, and I'm not going to give them to you again by way of definition, but last week we looked at the word lollard. It sounds a lot like lolly, but it's got nothing to do with lollies. If you don't know what lollard is, get the notes from last week because it's an important term used in the 1500s. Then we looked at the Roman Catholic Church, what is meant by that. And then we looked at one other, which is called penance. And I want you to, if you're able, listen to last week's message or get a copy of the notes so that you're up to date with our ever-growing glossary of terms from the Reformation. But today I want to add some more for our consideration as we begin. The first term I want you to understand is the term infant baptism. The Roman Catholic Church practiced what is called infant baptism as a means of washing away the stain of original sin. In other words, they believed, and by the way, still believe, that infant baptism is a necessary prerequisite to salvation and the forgiveness of sin. Infant baptism forms one of the many anti-biblical traditions imposed by the Roman Catholic Church. And although many of the reformers had been baptized as infants because of what they had grown up in, And some of them even went on to believe it was still relevant, like Luther and Calvin and others. None of them believed that it was required for salvation as the Roman Catholic Church asserted. So the point is this. The Roman Catholic Church said, if you have not been baptized, you cannot be saved. Baptism is a necessary work in order to be saved. You need to understand that this morning as we go into this subject. The second term is the term Anabaptist. Some of you will have heard of that. Anabaptists, formally speaking, this term applies to those who challenged the scriptural basis of infant baptism. The issue came to the forefront in the process of the Zurich Reformation and the term catabaptist or anti-baptists was initially coined by Ulrich Zwingli, who is on one of these tables here. The Anabaptists came to be the most visible and the most attacked congregations in the entire Protestant Reformation. Many, many of them were killed over their stand on the fact that infant baptism plays no part in salvation. So infant baptism, Anabaptist, I want you to see thirdly, third term, Eucharist. Unfortunately, it has fallen under uh, 
negative connotations, but the Greek word Eucharist simply means thanksgiving. It's a wonderful term, but used in the Roman Catholic setting, it is often referred to as the holy sacrifice of the mass, probably being performed or so an hour or so ago in our own little country town here. At the time of the Reformation and today, partaking of the Eucharist, or as we might call it, the Lord's Supper, was essential to sins being forgiven. In fact, there is something called the Council of Trent, which was a gathering from 1545 to 1563. It was an ecumenical gathering of the Roman Catholic Church throughout all the regions. And it was formed as a direct response to the Reformation to the things that had been said. And at that particular council, this is what they asserted. By the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the entire substance of the bread into the actual substance of the body of Christ our Lord and the whole substance of the wine into the actual substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. In other words, if I were here as the priest of a Catholic Church, we would have here the Eucharist or the communion or the Holy Mass that would be taken. And as I, excuse me, as I bless those elements, they would mystically and magically transform into the actual body and blood of Christ. Thereby, in taking that, I would receive forgiveness of sin. That's the concept that we find here by this particular council. And this was a central, a central sacrament which was made for the atonement of sins. Failure to partake in that would result in someone's sins not being forgiven. And should they die without having partaken, they would most certainly go to purgatory and possibly even to the place of hell in Catholic teaching. The fourth part is confirmation. The fourth term is confirmation. One of the seven sacraments, confirmation it's called, and formally affirmed as an article of belief in 1439. Here's what would happen. Candidates for confirmation were anointed with unction, it was called, by the confirming bishop in the sign of the cross. You've probably seen it. When people do that with the holy oil in the Catholic Church. The Protestant reformers were united in regards to confirmation being a sacrament only. It had, they said, no scriptural basis whatsoever. It contained no divine promise and was not essential for salvation. And yet the Catholic Church believed that it was. The last one, the last term I want us to see this morning by way of an introduction here is good works. Good works. The Roman Catholic Church taught and continues to teach that good works are essential for entry into salvation and for maintaining it. Good works were generally defined as prayers, fasting, almsgiving, pilgrimages, indulgences, obedience to papal authority, participating in the Mass and the Eucharist all religious disciplines, and the fulfilment of the entire seven sacraments. These terms, serious terms, and for us today, the reason I mention them is because they are so critical to the Reformation. This is what they stood against, infant baptism. Anabaptists stood against that, the Eucharist, the confirmation, and ultimately good works as a means of gaining salvation. That's a brief glossary, a very brief glossary. But I want you to see, secondly, and where we're headed this morning, the definition of sola gratia. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, please. Ephesians chapter 2 is the hallmark passage on this subject. Ephesians chapter 2, and I have to be very careful not to overstep my mark this morning because Lucas follows me next week. And grace and faith are very interconnected. So I'm going to do my best to not steal any of his thunder for next week. But Ephesians chapter 2, and we're just going to read verses 8 and 9. Favourite passage of the Reformers, the Apostle Paul writes this, For by grace you have been saved 
through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For by grace you have been saved. That just rolls off our tongue without any real great meaning in one sense. But to the reformers, that verse spoke volumes. For by infant baptism you are saved, the church would say. For by penance you are saved. For by the sacraments you are saved. For by the good works you are saved. For by this, for by this, for by this you are saved. And the reformers clung to this verse both in life and in death. For by grace alone you are saved. They would say, I want us to understand the context of how critical and important this verse was for them and for us today. But before we can define this concept of sola gratia, we must first understand the term grace. Grace. Sadly, grace has become so common a term and its rich meaning is largely lost in today's culture. And in seeking to understand the Reformation and all that it stood for, we must be transported, in some sense, back to that backdrop of their culture if we're going to understand this word and term, grace. So let me begin by explaining what grace is not. Grace is not simply a divine sentiment. A decision or a tendency in God to overlook sin as an overindulgent parent might when dealing with a naughty child. Grace is not God turning a blind eye to human rebellion. God cannot do that. Nor is it a free pass to do whatever one chooses. Shall we sin that grace may abound? Paul says in the strongest Greek language, God forbid, that is not the case. So then, what is grace? Grace is simply the unmerited favour of God. So simplistic a definition, and yet it speaks volumes of truth. We need to understand this in greater measures. Unmerited favour of God. Now this is typically categorised in three ways, and I want to give them to you quickly by way of theology. Grace is categorized in three ways. Number one, we have common grace. Number two, we have salvific grace. And number three, we have sanctifying grace. Let's talk about common grace first of all. When the reformers spoke of what is called common grace, they referred to God's general attitude towards his creation in allowing them to flourish in this earthly realm, despite whether or not they ever chose to accept his offer of salvation. In other words, God's common grace is simply seen in the provision of food. If you had breakfast this morning, then you have already experienced the grace of God. If you opened your eyes this morning, you've already experienced the common grace of God. If you have laughed at all, you have experienced the common grace of God. If you have seen the sunshine, although we're in Alexandria, perhaps not today... You have experienced the common grace of God. The rain, wealth, clothing, supplies, materialism, all of these things is considered common grace. God's uh, being so gracious to us in giving us things to common man is considered common grace. And it's right throughout the scripture. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. In Matthew 5.45, Jesus says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Luke 6.35, Jesus says, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the grateful and to the evil. Sometimes as Christians, we want God to be merciless with the unsaved. 
in a, in a real common sense. But in actual fact, the Bible makes it clear that he is gracious to all. In Acts 14, 17, Paul says, Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God's common grace is everywhere to both the saved and the unsaved. All in this world experience God's common grace. And it is an expression of his character. But common grace cannot bring a person to salvation of their soul. Common grace is God's extension of his favour towards mankind as a whole, but it can save no one alone. That's why we come to our second part, our second category, which is salvific grace. Now, please don't be concerned about these terminologies as they might scare you. I'm going to explain. Salvific grace simply refers to that which relates to salvation. Salvific salvation. And what we mean by that is this is a special grace that is associated with the conversion of a sinner. Common grace is for all. We all enjoy the sunrise and the sunset and the laughter and the tears and the emotions and so forth. But salvific grace relates to our justification, being declared righteous. Or we might say regeneration, being made alive by the Spirit of God. Although we perceive God's unmerited favour towards us in creation and his common grace we observe a far greater example of grace in the gospel which brings about our salvation. If you want to know what grace is, yes, look at common grace out there. But if you really, if you really want to understand what grace is all about, it is demonstrated in salvation. Let me explain this. Salvific grace refers to God's unmerited favour towards fallen sinners who deserve to experience the full weight of his wrath and condemnation for all eternity. But instead, are set free from sin's penalty by means of Christ's atoning work on the cross and his subsequent resurrection from the dead. I'm turning more and more like the Apostle Paul. My sentences have 25 commas and they go on for lines and lines. Let me say it again. Salvific grace refers to God's unmerited favour towards fallen sinners who deserve to experience the full weight of his wrath and condemnation for all eternity but instead are set free from sin's penalty by means of Christ's atoning work on the cross and his subsequent resurrection from the dead. This gift of God, Ephesians 2 verse 8, is wholly a work of God and cannot be earned or bought by the sinner. This is what the Reformation was about. This was what these men stood for. They were saying it has to be a work of God because no deeds of the law can justify. It's got to be alien to us. It has to be, they would say from the pages of Scripture. Common grace, number one. Salvific grace, number two. And thirdly, sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace refers to that ongoing grace or favour of God that does not save us from our sins only, but also brings about our maturity in the faith and our conforming to the character of Christ. Let me put it another way. It is impossible for an individual to experience God's salvific grace without venturing into the realm of God's sanctifying grace. Here's what I mean. If he saved you, he will sanctify you by his grace. The two are interwoven together. You cannot be saved and then not be sanctified. That defeats everything that God said he would do. Now, before I actually get to the point about sola gracia, I need to make one other essential comment this morning about this matter of grace. And I guess I've called this the supreme manifestation of grace. Since the creation of the world, humans have experienced God's grace. God has always been gracious and he always will be. This is because grace is intrinsically connected with his character. He does not simply have 
and inclination towards grace. He is the very definition and origin of grace. Did you get that? He doesn't simply have an inclination. It's not just like he has an inclination towards this. This is who he is. This forms his character. God is gracious. And although God's grace is clearly seen on every page in the scriptures and throughout history, the supreme manifestation of God's grace is Jesus Christ. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 17 he says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. One cannot speak of God's grace without speaking of God's Son. He is the embodiment of graciousness. And the means of common grace. And the means of salvific grace. And the means of sanctifying grace. You say, how's that possible? Well, in our common grace, Jesus is the creator of all things, we're told in the scripture. In salvific grace, he's the redeemer and the propitiation for sin. And in sanctifying grace, he's the one who lives within and lives out our Christianity through us. Christ is in common grace. He's in salvific grace and he's in a sanctifying grace. So then we say, well, what is solar gracia? That's all well and good. That's wonderful about grace. But what is solar gracia? Well, it's the biblical doctrine that was upheld by these reformers, which acknowledges that salvation is entirely a gift of God. It cannot be earned. It stands in direct contrast to the Roman Catholic teachings sacraments and traditions if we had more time i would tell us to go to romans three twenty-one to 25 where we're told that justification is by grace as a gift i would take us to romans chapter 11 verses 5 and 6 which says if it is by grace it is no longer on the basis of works otherwise grace would no longer be grace grace by its very definition cannot involve works because grace is grace it's a gift it can't be works And we would look more at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, which says, For by grace you have been saved. The reformers clung to this portion of scripture with their life and even to their death. Let me just give you a couple of quick quotes from the reformers about this matter of grace. Martin Luther, we looked at him sometime last week, in his sermon on Titus chapter 3 verses 4 to 8, says the following, Yes, dear friend, you must first possess heaven and salvation before you can do good works. Works never merit heaven. Heaven is conferred purely of grace. And then he says in another place, He who does not receive salvation purely through grace, independently of all good works, certainly will never secure it. In another place he says, We receive absolution or forgiveness And grace at no cost or labor on our part, but not without cost and labor on the part of Christ. And lastly, he says, our salvation must exist, not in our righteousness, but in Christ's righteousness. Let his righteousness and grace, not yours, be your refuge. Martin Luther. Ulrich Zwingli. Another reformer says, Christ is our justification from which follows that our good works. If they are of Christ, they are good. If they are ours, they are neither right nor good. He says, since Christ is our righteousness, our works are only good in as far as they are of Christ. Swingley. John Calvin lastly writes, our assurance Our glory and the sole anchor of our salvation are that Christ, the Son of God, is ours. And we in turn are in him sons of God and heirs of the kingdom of heaven, called to the hope of eternal blessedness by God's grace and not by our worth. If people mean that man has in himself the power to work in partnership with God's grace, they are most wretchedly deluding themselves. By grace alone. 
And so in understanding somewhat this definition of sola gracia, I want us to move on to point number three, which is the same as what we did last week, the implications of sola gracia. And we have just a little bit to cover here before we finish. In this third and final point, and I should say in brackets with some subpoints, as everybody looks at me as they know, I want us to understand what sola gracia meant to the reformers in a practical sense. But then I also want us to look at what it means for me, for you. Mount Cathedral Community Baptist Church, 21st century Christianity. Why does this even matter? Why are we celebrating the 500 years of Reformation? Why do these truths mean anything whatsoever to me? Those people are gone and it's all changed, hasn't it? What difference does it make for us today? Well, firstly, when it comes to the Reformers, I want to talk about grace versus the sacraments, firstly. The Eucharist, we've already discussed, was upheld as a salvific rite in the Roman Catholic Church. If you don't partake of this, they would say, then you are not a child of God and your sins cannot be forgiven. The Lord's table or the communion table was of vital importance to the reformers, the ones that we esteem so high. They love the Lord's table. They love the Eucharist in its truest sense, a thanksgiving service, celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. However, it was a point of great contention and controversy. Because some had come out of the Catholic Church but still maintained that the elements did mystically transfer into the body and blood of Christ in the early days. They believed that that might still happen. However, what they did not believe was that that had any impact on their salvation. They believed simply that Jesus was present with them in the communion service. Now, we know some centuries later, having studied the word some more and having had great, a lot more writings and study in there, we understand that the scripture teaches that these elements do not transfer into the literal body and blood of Christ. He died once, never to die again. But understand being in that culture, understand coming out of the fact that every, every week, every day, perhaps, the priest would bless it and this would mystically turn into the body and blood of Christ. And I would need to take that in order to remain saved. The reformers came out of that and said, that is not true. That is not correct. It has to be by grace alone because he died once for all. And so in our understanding of these things, which has changed somewhat from the early days of the reformers, we appreciate what the scripture teaches here. And we see even in Luther's time, and by no means am I saying Luther had it all right. There were many things that he was still working on right at his death. One of them was that Luther would never even touch the elements of communion, lest he be handling God. Because he had come out of that situation, even as a Christian. He became a nervous wreck at the time of communion. It would do us well to have a little bit more of that piety but not that perspective. It would do us well to understand how, uh, how important the Lord's table is, how wonderful it is for us to be able to celebrate that and to come with a little bit more nerve, to come with a little bit more, this is in honour of God and failure to do it right may result in sickness and death, but not to think that this is the actual body and blood of Christ. Luther and Zwingli had some Large disagreements on this. Calvin had large disagreements on this. But they all agreed that partaking of the communion in no way assisted in salvation or in maintaining it. Then the second thing that the reformers were dealing with was grace versus baptism. That's where that infant baptism came in earlier. This is one of the hottest potatoes in Christendom. This is one of the hottest debated topics in all of history. This matter of baptism. The Roman Catholic Church taught and still teaches that water baptism is necessary for salvation. The reformers, in looking at the word and trying to understand what the scripture taught, they quickly realized that there is nothing that pre is a prerequisite to salvation but grace alone through faith in Christ. That is the means of salvation. Nothing else can be in that order. Baptism, the Eucharist, uh, any other aspects of Roman Catholic tradition cannot stand before this matter of grace by faith, by, by grace through faith in Christ. 
And although in history we read that the reformers had some variances of opinion when it comes to baptism, again, everybody was in agreement that the command for baptism must be after someone has experienced the grace of God. We could talk about that some more. Let me give you number three. The biggest one, grace versus works of the law. The Roman Catholic Church had placed an insurmountable yoke on the laity. They had said, unless you continue to do this and this and this and go through all of the motions and the traditions and the sacraments, etc., you cannot be guaranteed forgiveness of sin. They had to be baptized. They have to be indulgences. They had to be confessions and fasting and prayer, partaking of the Eucharist and other man-made traditions. And last week, you remember, I told you, Luther became so overwhelmed by all of this. He was a monk in a monastery. He was doing all of this and his conscience was no closer to God and he would beat himself and there would be all, all manner of self-inflicted harm in order that God would be pleased. So far had he gone in thinking that he had to do something for God until one day he turned to Romans chapter 1 and he realized that it was justification by faith. It had to be faith. It had to be grace. It had to be something that I couldn't do. And finally, his conscience was awakened by that truth. We could talk so much about this matter of salvation is by grace alone, but I want to turn our attention this morning in closing to perhaps the most important aspect of the message, which is that which is for us as a church. And I'm borrowing some points from an author that I've been reading, Carl Truman, who has written a book entitled Grace Alone, Salvation as a Gift of God. It's part of a Reformation series that he has written. And I want to point out a few things that are important for us as a church as we think of grace alone. First of all, a grace alone church takes sin seriously. Since grace is not simply a sentiment or an attitude of God, but rather his unmerited favor to sinful people. It is important that we do not cheapen his grace. So important that we don't just take it for granted or make it something that it is not by underestimating its value and the seriousness of sin. You see, today we have churches absolutely packed to the brim with prosperity gospel. And I don't think there is something that I repudiate personally more than this idea of the prosperity gospel, which advocates using grace as a means of self-fulfillment. It has the idea that my self-esteem issues are somehow connected with God's grace being the fulfillment for them. Grace is not about self-esteem. Grace is not about you having uh, self-fulfillment and some psychological hole being met in your life. That's not what grace is at all. That is to cheapen and to twist the beauty and the grandeur of what this is. This is the unmerited favor of God given to sinners. And I believe with all my heart that until the church returns to an understanding of the absolute depravity of sin... And man, and its exceeding heinousness, there will never be an appreciation for God's redeeming grace. There won't be. I know I say this all the time by way of illustration, but unless the sky is black, unless sin is seen for what it is, the glory of the gospel, which is that bright shining star in that place, it won't be seen. It must be on the black backdrop of our sinfulness that we see the glory of the gospel. And we are told in churches today that grace is this type of flippant thing that God saw something good in you. No, he didn't. God didn't see any good in you. God knew exactly what you were. And that is that you are depraved beyond all measure and deserve death and hell for all eternity. That's what God saw. And yet he extends his grace. That's how we get the beauty and the grandeur of grace. Not what we see in church today. A grace alone church takes sin seriously. We've got to take it seriously so that we can enjoy more fully the immeasurable riches of his grace. 
But secondly, a grace alone church takes Christ seriously. Since God's redeeming grace came by means of his son, we must not simply look at grace as some distant object that was given to us to deal with sin. Grace came through Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Jesus Christ. God became flesh and he is the means of grace. If we talk about grace without talking of Christ, we are not speaking biblically of grace. A church that believes in salvation by grace alone must proclaim Christ as the center and means of grace. When you tell people about the gospel, you cannot, you cannot leave out the fact that Jesus Christ is the means of God's unmerited favor towards us. It's not that you have something, it's that Jesus Christ had everything for us. He is the means of grace. It must be about Christ. And boy, did the reformers make that a reality. Just wait two weeks and I'll tell you about that. But then thirdly, a grace alone church takes assurance of salvation seriously. One of the things that came out of the Reformation, which is wonderful, is the fact that they rediscovered, for want of another term, the truth about the fact that salvation is forever. I talk to people often who tell me that salvation cannot be forever. Well, your salvation that doesn't involve God cannot be forever. But the salvation that is wholly a gift of God has to be forever. It has to be forever because it wasn't just simply given for justification. It was given for sanctification. And God says, those who might justify, I'm going to sanctify. And those who I sanctify, I'm going to glorify. He says, he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion. You can't start and not finish. God does not start something that he will not finish. And a grace alone church says, yes, you may be struggling in your life. Yes, there may be sins you're working through. But there is never a time if you've truly been saved that you can lose your salvation. Never a time. The question comes in, not have you lost your salvation? Did you ever truly have it? Because the Bible says that it is a straight and narrow way. It's a hard way. It's not an easy way. And broad is the way to destruction. Grace alone takes assurance of salvation seriously. In fact, the author of the book wrote, God's sovereign grace meant that Christians could be confident that God was their God and would love and care for them until they were safely home. Love it. Number four, a grace alone church takes the corporate gathering of the church seriously. A grace alone church does not come together to secure their salvation as does the Catholic church. We don't come together this morning hoping that we'll be saved again. Hoping that in partaking of this or doing that we will somehow earn the favour of God. The grace alone church says I come because I love God and I am his. And because it's essential to my growth and my discipleship. You know understanding the grace of God will invoke a great desire to meet as often as possible with the people of God. Truthfully, I, I used to wonder when I would listen to preaching and I'd listen to pastors as they would talk about not forsaking the assembling of themselves together and all those passages that you know pastors like to preach from the pulpits to encourage people to be there and make sure you're tired and make sure you do all this. But in, in these more recent years, I've come to realize, I don't know why any Christian wouldn't want to be with the church. I can't understand it. I mean, in this world, this world is so full of evil and sinful aspects and they are constantly bearing down upon my soul and I just want to be with God's people. I want to talk about God. I want to listen to what experiences you've had. I want to be encouraged by your walk with the Lord. I want to look at your life and say, I want to be like that. I can't understand how a true Christian could ever not want to be with God's church. Something's wrong. Now, I know there's all sorts of problems in churches. We have our own problems. This is God's calling for us to meet together as God's people. And a grace alone church takes the corporate gathering of God's people seriously. Hope you do. So that we can serve side by side in building the kingdom of God. 
Number five. Now you're starting to get worried. There's five. I wonder how many he's got. I'm not going to tell you. Number five, because that way I can uh, leave some for another time. A grace alone church takes the Bible seriously. I shed a tear this morning when I was watching Tyndale's martyrdom in that little fictitious video there. I have a Bible. I have a precious treasure. I have God's revealed word for me right here in my language that I can go and read at any time. But a grace alone church says this is our governance. This is my rule of faith and practice. This is what I want to know and love and live according to. A grace alone church sees the importance of the scripture, sola scriptura. I'm not going to spend any more time on that. Number six. Here's one that bothers me. A grace alone church takes teaching and preaching seriously. This bothers me because today, as I survey churches, I find less and less of the Bible, more and more of entertainment, more and more of conforming to the culture rather than conforming to Christ. Preaching and teaching was central to the Reformation because it accomplished one of two things. It either hardened the hearts or it forced people to their knees in repentance. They knew the power of preaching. Today, preaching has been reduced to short little anecdotes that may or may not even include the scripture. It's designed to tickle the ears but never impact the heart. In fact, I came across an old illustration from many years ago, an old saying that I heard a preacher once say, and it sort of has humor, but it's pretty sad too. He said, today we have sermonettes for Christianettes who drive Corvettes, worship in discotheques while chewing on Nicorettes. Let me say that again. We have sermonettes for Christianettes who drive Corvettes, worship in discotheques while chewing Nicorettes. The concept there is not that, uh, that's, it's, you know, it's a dangerous comment, but the truth there, what he's trying to get across is that we have these short little messages for people who are more concerned about worldly materialism, more concerned about the entertainment in the church, and uh, won't get holy in their lifestyle. The church that is serious about God's grace will be a church that longs for God's truth. I want to be, I want us to be that church. I want us to have such a desire for the preaching and teaching of God's word that it consumes us. That we start saying that's not enough. We want more. We want more. We want to learn more about God's word because this is what it's all about. In a culture that is going downhill at a rapid rate, I need to know what the scripture teaches. I want to know. My heart's desire in grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is to understand the foundation stone that much more about scripture. I want to know more of the character of God. Seventh, a grace alone church takes water baptism seriously. Since... A grace alone church knows the truth about water baptism. They ought to teach about it. I don't think we're guilty of that. We teach about baptism and we perform baptisms, but we call people to obey this biblical ordinance. That was lost for a time. People were so scared of what the scripture taught about baptism. And so a grace alone church will teach about water baptism. Number eight, a grace alone church takes the Lord's Supper seriously. They know it's not the transubstantiation that the Roman Catholic Church said, but they realize that it is a somber time and it's esteemed highly both as a celebration and as a remembrance. It invokes in us both a quiet time of self-examination and an exuberant joy as we think of all that God's amazing grace has accomplished for us. A grace alone church takes the Lord's Supper seriously. Lastly, Number nine, grace alone church takes prayer seriously. Finally, a church that believes in grace alone will inevitably take prayer seriously because she knows that she exists only in complete and total dependence upon the Lord who bought her. See, prayer is simply this, my heartfelt expression 
of dependence before God. And if I realize that my salvation is dependent on one person and that person is Jesus Christ, then my heart is filled with gratitude and praise and it will inevitably form thanksgiving in prayer. It has to. It's only right that the church is characterized by prayer, both corporately and privately. So many more things could be said. Read the notes sometime. But as you can see from last week and from today, our studies in this solar system are both rich and full. And time is always our enemy. We need to close. And as we do, I want to urge you to consider afresh the words of a one-time slave trader changed to a saint who wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I've been found. I was blind, but now I see. It was this grace that taught my heart to fear. And this grace that my fears were relieved. How precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believed. We need to return to grace. Sola gracia. Father, thank you for the help needed to present this message. I know full well that the pages in front of me are absolutely filled with so many different thoughts and uh, how hard it is to channel our attention to each of these. And uh, Lord, I just pray that each person in this room will have taken something, even if it's just one solitary truth about grace, about what the reformers stood for, about what we are to stand for, uh, into their hearts and that they would allow the Spirit to water that seed and to bring it to greater amounts of truth, that it would blossom. Lord, give us an appetite for understanding this matter of grace in deeper and greater ways. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for those of yesteryear who stood for grace alone in salvation. And Lord, I pray for those in our midst today who have not tasted of the grace of God. They've not accepted that free gift of salvation. They are yet in their sins. They are yet under the condemnation of your holy wrath. I pray that you would open their eyes to see, to behold the truth, to understand what marvelous, majestic and grand grace is available to them in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, for us who are believers today, may this be even greater than what we have experienced in the past. May this truth go deeper. May it shine brighter. May it fill our eyes with tears and our heart with joy as we consider the one who endured such contradiction and hostility of sinners against himself in order to purchase us. Oh, the message of the gospel, how glorious it is. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.